Hello everyone, and welcome to a brand new episode of Opera After Dark. Hola, bienvenidos a Opera After Dark. How nice, Kyle. Ahora nice. vamos a hablar de la ópera María de Buenos Aires. Yes, so today we're not talking about Evita, although that would be my secret dream. We're talking about María de Buenos Aires. Sí. By not an opera composer. That's R right. Right. By the king of the tango. The king of the tango. Yeah, the king of the tango, Astor Piazzolla. Mm -hmm. Piazzolla. Do you guys know Piazzolla very well? Not, you familiar? not really. I wouldn't say I know Piazzolla very well, but I do have a, like a soft, it's not a soft spot, but like there's a particular thing from my graduate school life that is connected to Piazzolla. What is it? Yeah, so do share. One of my very first professors, uh, Dr. Alan Atlas, who basically wrote the book on Renaissance music on Rayfon Williams and on Astor Piazzolla. He is a concertina player. I don't know if people know what a concertina is, but imagine an accordion that is the shape of a hexagon and has buttons on either side and kind of looks like a squeeze box, mm -hmm. right? And Unlike an accordion, the pitches actually, the buttons alternate on either side. So, like, it's like A is on the left, then B is on the right, then C is on the left, and then D is on the right. And Alan Atlas plays the concertina. And he, in one of our first classes, he, like, brought the concertina in and played us some Astor Piazzolla. Oh, and nice. Aww. Yeah. And... And I know that he's done research on Astor Piazzolla and his, you know, work and contributions to the tango. And then a few years later, when I took what was called the two-week paper in graduate school, which doesn't happen anymore, but when I was in graduate school, this back is what we had day. to do. Back in the day, it was <laughs> one of our exams, like one of our comprehensive exams. So there's kind of like levels of comprehensive exams. So part of the first exam was what was called the two-week paper. And you literally had to pick an envelope out of a hat. And inside the envelope, there were two strips of paper and there was a topic on either strip of paper. And from the moment you picked the envelope, you had 24 hours to choose what topic you were going to write about. And then from the moment you submit your official choice, you have two weeks hand in a paper on that topic and so my two topics were on the origin of the tango or the messiah after handle mm, and we okay. all know how that went actually went really well because i wrote on the messiah after handle oh. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> because i knew i was like i know that this second topic on the origin of the tango would A, involve me writing about Astor Piazzolla, who I know next to nothing about, but mm -hmm. also might possibly like open a can of worms about like musical diaspora that I did not feel confident taking on. 
And so I was like, Handel and the Messiah, those are things I know a lot more about, so I'm going to go that route. Oh my gosh, but think of what you could have dealt out in this episode about Maria de Buenos Aires. Fortunately for this episode, I don't need to know anything about it because Kyle is an expert and <gasps> no, he is no, going no. to share with no, us no, no, all no, about no, no, this no. opera. Take it away, Kyle Homewood. I was just going to say, dude, we should have had your your former professor on to talk about Astor Piazzolla because, to be honest, I don't know a ton about the guy. No, you said you would do this, so. Yeah, you yeah, have yeah to we're now. doing it. We're doing it. It's going to be good. You're locked in, buddy. So can you tell me, Naomi, do you know the difference? And I, I, I wish I had the answer to this, but is the concertina similar to or the same as a bandonion? That I do not know. Because similarly, I mean, basically, Astor Piazzolla is known for playing the bandonion, which is, it, it sounds like it's either very similar or maybe there are two names for the same instrument. Mm-hmm. I think they I think they are extremely similar. I've just looked up a picture and from what I can tell the bendonion looks like it's square shaped. Yeah. Yeah, when you said hexagon Whereas, shape I was like what does that even look like? Yeah, it's like, like on the side. Like the planks on the side yeah, yeah. are hexagon. Are hexagon. Yeah. yeah. Um No, the bendonion gets often gets confused with an accordion. Mm-hmm. Although it's very right. different. I think it is a type of concertina. I yeah. think that is correct. Okay, yeah. fair enough. And if the you really the concertina, like the Western concertina, had an interesting history as like a women's instrument because you didn't have to sit in an inappropriate way in order to play it. Oh, well, like, there you go. Because imagine a woman in like the 1700s playing a cello, mm-hmm. like putting something between <laughs> her legs it would never be done. Oh it was not God. a thing that you did. No, right. And so the concertina, especially in like the like kind of romantic right through the Victorian era was this instrument that was very socially appropriate for women to play. Mm. Um, but it had these other derivations in other parts of the world. And so I think the bandonion is one of those kind of cousins or types of concertinas. Well, if you want to piss off a bandonion player, <laughs> you should call their <laughs> instrument an accordion and see uh, what happens. Nope. People Noted. get pissed. But it is also <laughs> worth mentioning that it's it's very rare for people to play this instrument. Mm-hmm. So it is very rare. Like it's it's mainly used in tango music, but certainly in the United States, there's been like I, I would say it's fair to say Maria de Buenos Aires has had a a moment in the past mm-hmm. certainly in the past twenty years, but but even the past just ten years. And there's only right. a handful of people that can play the bandonion well enough to play the opera that's often the hardest part of scheduling this opera for an opera company is making sure you have a good bandonion oh. player hmm. because yeah it's kind of like oh go ahead like the glass harmonica of this <laughs> opera you need to find someone who can play it that's what i was thinking mm-hmm. or replace it with a different instrument yeah which probably wouldn't sound the same right but don't they replace the glass harmonica with the they do a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. Well, Astor Piazzolla was a bandonion player. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, it's interesting. So Piazzolla is a very Italian-sounding name because it is mm-hmm. an Italian name. Uh, his family moved from Italy to Argentina, 
uh, and settled there. But actually, even though, so he was born in Argentina, but then when he was a young child, moved to New York City and actually grew up in like Greenwich Village, apparently in a time when Greenwich Village was pretty shady. Can you even imagine? I mean, it's so the opposite of that now. (laughs) It is the opposite of that now, but I just imagine like... I don't know if you've ever been to the Tenement Museum, mm-hmm. but the Tenement Museum in New York City is really good, and they have a, an apartment building that they've like kept preserved from bygone eras, and just I just can't imagine living like that. Yeah, when do you know in when an that era before like electricity? Well, not maybe not before electricity, but like before you know air conditioning and right. proper ventilation and. That type of thing. When so. is the Tenement Museum supposed to be, like, modeled after what time? Is there a specific time? I think they have a couple of different, like, tours you can go on. But one of them is, like, turn of the century, like, around 1900, I think. Okay. Um, so Piazzolla is a little bit after that. He was born in, in 1921. But, not. I mean, oh. very similar scenario. And right. yeah, you guys mm-hmm. hit the nail on the head where Greenwich Village at that time was like, there was like some mob stuff going on around there, but also mm-hmm. just like a lot of immigrant families just trying to make it work. Right. Yeah. But Piazzolla's dad actually was the one that bought him his first bandonion. He got it from a pawn shop when he was oh, only wow. like 10 years old. And so that was how he started getting into the the bandonion. Uh, mm-hmm. He did also do some classical study and, and actually at one point um, learned to play like some Bach on his bandonion. Aw. <laughs> Didn't he is... like study with, like he, did he take lessons or was he self-taught? Uh, he studied. I don't have the name of his teacher okay. here, but he later on, when, when he was learning some of the Bach stuff, he studied with somebody who was a student of Rachmaninoff. Like mm-hmm. he certainly had. Of course. I know, right. He had some classical influence. It wasn't just tango music. But right. really he how he kind of established himself is he started playing with these legit tango players. Like and then even as, okay. as a pretty young like as a teenager, he would go and play with these adults that were like on tour and, and all of that and became a legit player in that realm. Which in the the time that I did see this opera, now this is like a year and a half ago, I found out a lot about tango that I never knew. Like there's a whole tango subculture. Mm-hmm. Okay. And it's one of those things that like the the more you find out about it, the more you realize like there's a million things that you're never going to know about it. Mm-hmm. And so right. I'm, I'm not totally comfortable going deep on, on tango because I just, I don't know. I really don't know. For the same reason why I didn't choose to write a paper on the origin of the tango. That's fair. Yes. Yeah, exactly. But interestingly with Piazzolla is he's kind of associated with this like subgenre that's referred to as tango nuevo or new tango. That kind of mixes styles and implements elements of jazz music, a little bit of classical music, um, elements of, of counterpoint into tango. Can we... Can we listen to some Tango Nuevo? Yeah. (laughs) 
I did leave out earlier, but it's been pointed out that Piazzolla has, or he did do some study with Nadia Boulanger. Very important lady. Right. So adds a lot of street cred. Everybody, like everybody who's everybody. It's true. She did. Yeah. Do you have some examples? Look her up, people. Philip Glass. Oh. Yeah. Nice. I'm pretty sure Debussy mm-hmm. had some lessons with her. Um, it's one of those things where like pretty much anyone who made a name for themselves in 20th century music espe- and like specifically in, in America, like either came into contact with her, like went to Paris to study with her or studied with somebody who studied with didn't her. Bernstein? I think he her? did. Yeah. yeah. There you go. So... And she really, like, encouraged composers. She was very good at encouraging composers to find their own voice and their own style. Um, but, yeah, very important woman in the history of music. Why have we but not done an episode to... on Nadia Boulanger? We should. We should. We can. Okay. We will. We will. <laughs> that we shall. We should. We can. We will. Not tonight. <laughs> so, so thinking about Tango Nuevo, just like... Uh, pretty much anything else when you have like a new version of something that there's already this like really uh, hardcore following for. There's a lot of hard hardcore tango people that hate Tango Nuevo. Mm-hmm. And for oh, them, okay. they get like the best comparison I can make. And, and I don't think it's fair to say this, but it's kind of like for opera people that are hardcore, like old school opera people. And then mm-hmm. somebody comes up mm-hmm. and they're like, oh, I love Andrea Bocelli. Yes, I totally get you. And you're like, that's, it's not the same thing. It's like fine. Who's a, like I can appreciate like a, it, but it's not the same thing. Like a hardcore Verdi opera lover. And then they have to, they listen to like, I don't know, Britain. Right. Something that's not even that wild or different. Right. And they hate it. It's just different. Or like Lulu and- or... Yeah. Mm-hmm. For many people, it becomes more approachable, just like some of these other like kind of spinoff genres. So like to, to the lay person that hears it, they're like, oh, I love this. This is great. Mm-hmm. But then you still have people that will say, oh, well, that's not tango. Mm-hmm. The purists. Right. right. And so the opera Maria de Buenos Aires is referred to as a tango opera. But then ine- inevitably you have people that say like, Oh well, that's not that's not tango music, but it's mm-hmm. like it it is still tango music. It's <laughs> it's infused with tango. There's usually when you see productions of the opera, there's tango dancing involved. Um, it's all mm. a part of it, and the orchestration of the opera heavily includes the bandoneon and other instruments that are that are typically in tango music. Although on top of a more traditional set of orchestra uh, instruments. I have a question. Mm-hmm. So you say there's people out there who are tango purists that are like, this opera is not a tango opera because it's not really tango. Are there some people who are opera purists who are like, this opera is not an opera because it's tango? <laughs> you know what I mean? Yes. Like, oh, really? Yeah, this actually, okay. thinking about this opera gave me a, it gave me an idea for another episode, like basically all about crossover mm, operas. Okay. Or like when mm-hmm. you when you cross things with opera, whether it's taking classic opera hits and then crossing them over into more poppy style things, 
or mm-hmm. there are some operas that have been created with jazz influences. Um, actually, recently, there's right. been some uh, mariachi operas. Um, right. And they, they all end up taking a different effect and have different levels of success. But certainly mm-hmm. with several of these crossovers, this is the cynic in me, but I think like doing a, a, some sort of crossover style of opera is a sure way to make sure that nobody's happy. <laughs> so it's, in in Maria de Buenos Aires, um, do they sing in a classical style or do they sing in a more pop style? That's or folk style or folk style. Right. That's a that's a really good question. And in in the production that I saw, and I think most of the productions that are happening today, they're doing it. I, I think folk style is probably the truest thing to say, mm. but it is miked, which okay. Okay. that's where the traditional opera people are like, this is not opera. Mm-hmm, They're right. using microphones. But the singers, oh. the singers that are performing it have, in many cases, they have traditional opera voices, like great opera voices. They're just using their voices in a slightly different way. Uh, a good example, okay. I'm kind of jumping ahead, but it doesn't really matter, and you'll find out why in a little bit. But the most, like like the biggest hit song, if you could call it that, from Maria de Buenos Aires is a number called Yo Soy Maria, I, I Am Maria, um, mm-hmm. where it's kind of her like power ballad number. I guess power ballad isn't fair, but it's like her power number where she comes on and mm-hmm. she's like, I'm Maria, this is who I am. And... Uh, it generally sounds pretty pretty poppy. Mm-hmm. But let, let's, let's, listen, let's listen to, to it. it now so you can get a taste Yay. for it. Yo soy Maria de Buenos Aires De Buenos Aires, Maria, no ven quien soy yo Maria Tango, Maria del Arrabal, Maria Noche, Maria Pasión Fatal, Maria del Amor, de Buenos Aires soy yo. This is like a fun opera. It is, but it's not all of it is like that. <laughs> okay, okay, so before we started recording, you mentioned that the plot of this opera is confusing. So... What do we need to know to, going into it to better, you know, understand and, and access this work? I'm so happy that you asked it specifically that way. Okay. <laughs> because what you need to know, <laughs> it's going to sound so dumb, but what you need to know is that you, you really don't need to know anything. Actually, actually, what you need to know is that the the libretto of the opera by Horatio uh, Horatio Ferrer, it's it's surreal poetry. Is the the libretto? I was just about to ask, gotcha. like, should I approach this like a Salvador Dali painting? Like, yes. Okay. You, okay. Th- it th- means everything and nothing all at the same time. <gasps> yes. So the the poetry that's in the libretto, it's not meant to be literal. It's not like okay. people having a normal dialogue with each other. It's not somebody saying like, I went to the store and then this happened while I was there and then somebody fought me. And it's none of that. It's all symbolism 
And it's, okay. it's all very surreal. And a lot of people have a really hard time with that. But if you know that going in and you know that it's not supposed to be literal, that is mm-hmm. the key to enjoying this piece. Because then you, you kind of, oh. it, it invites your imagination. You're like, oh, I wonder what that means. I wonder what's going on. So, so even though the libretto is not literal, is is there any semblance of a storyline in this, or is like not really? There is. Is there something? Are there allusions to like a particular like history or life of a person? Kind of, but uh, <laughs> okay. the thing is, because it's so non-literal, that it really depends mm-hmm. on the production that you see. And it depends okay, gotcha. on the director that is bringing it to life. But generally, the very broad strokes of it are that Maria is like this young girl that comes from a very modest background. She moves to Buenos Aires, uh, where she's ultimately seduced by tango and the tango lifestyle. And so, mm-hmm. of course... Ooh then what does her job become? She's a woman in opera. Oh, oh she's no. a hooker. So, what was that, Elspeth? I said she was a hooker. A prostitute. A lady yeah. in the evening. She becomes a, a sex worker. Okay. Okay. Uh, so yeah, that that is what happens to her. And then naturally, the opera is named after her. So... Oh, no. no. She dies. How does she die? But the really confusing thing about it is that I, I think in the most original version of this, she technically dies like halfway through. And then there's like this spirit of Maria that like then lives on, this shadow of Maria that then Ooh. continues on in the opera and you know is experiencing these different things. But also, before like, like towards the end of the opera, she also has a child. Like she has a baby. Like a ghost baby? I think that's what was originally there. But then once again, directors take their own bent. Mm-hmm. But there's this, I, huh. I guess this is as good of time as any to mention that there's this character in it that's that's El Duende, which is this, okay. um, it's kind of like this cultural mythical figure in uh, Argentine culture the duende as far as i can understand is like a goblin type character but but it takes many different forms like sometimes it's kind of like the devil sometimes it's like just a bad person sometimes it's a man sometimes it's a woman it it really could be anything wait so does she have like a goblin ghost baby yeah that's what i was getting at is that it's like the the duende perhaps has impregnated her. Ooh. Yeah, it's 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 pretty odd. Wait, so okay, question. Okay, many questions. Yeah, uh, what is the source material for the opera? Is it just the 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 librettist just wrote this poetry and they decided to create a story around it, or is it based on like a pre existing story mm. or like a, a myth or a legend or something right. like that? Yeah, as far as I can tell, there's not a specific source material for this. Okay. It's something that was hmm. so created by, by the composer and librettist. Um, people okay. do draw ties to like uh, a Virgin Mary 
type scenario. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's a comparison that gets made. But once again, it's all very loosey-goosey. So so you've seen this opera? (laughs) Yes. So is the music, are there moments where the music is like very programmatic and like describing things that the text leaves ambiguous? Uh, I wouldn't say so. Okay. I, I think it's really up to okay. the it's really up to the director and the actions mm-hmm. that the director asked to be represented. So, so the the production that I saw of this was there was plenty of action that was taking place on stage. Mm-hmm. They were all choices of of the director, and it, and actually, so there are different numbers in the score. There's I think there's there's over ten numbers. I don't know the exact number. And so some directors, like the director of the production that I saw, they chose to have each of these numbers kind of represent a different scene or a different scenario or different parts of a scene. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. But it really can can mix and match. I, w- hmm. I wish I could be more specific on it, but very seriously, it, that's just not the style of, <laughs> hmm. of this okay. opera. Well, did you enjoy it when you saw it? I really did. Okay. I enjoyed it because I knew going in that it was very surreal and that the point of it wasn't to follow a specific storyline and like have resolution with this character. And actually the point of it is not to understand all of these different aspects. Hmm. Um, the, the point of it is to see the, the poetry and the, the imagery and see what the director's trying to represent with that and then take your own assumptions away from that. So knowing that, I found it enjoyable. And I do find this music to be extremely enjoyable. It's really catchy. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, so to my knowledge and asking you if you know, um, this was the only thing that Piazzolla wrote that could be categorized as like an opera or something from like a more classical art form, right? Or yeah, am I wrong? the only thing that's like an stuff? opera, and actually traditionally, or or I should say originally, when he created this, it was more so something that was performed like in tango clubs. Mm-hmm. It wasn't something that was necessarily envisioned to go to different opera like opera houses. houses. Okay, it does strike me. It's almost like it's like maybe not beatnik, but like. The idea that it it's like living art, right? Like more, it's like performance art more than. Mm-hmm. Well, it sounds very much of the time. When was it written? Uh, nineteen sixty-eight was when it premiered or when it was composed. Okay. So that sounds like it's very of the times, like what was going on mm-hmm. in like the art of visual art and and pop culture and things like that. It was a very sort of for lack of a word, better word, surrealist right. kind of thing. So this seems very much of the time mm-hmm. yeah. that it was created. Yeah, definitely. So it, so it was created in 68, and then it, it, I think, had some small-scale performances. And then as of the mid-'90s, it started to gain some popularity in the United States. I think Houston Grand Opera was the first um, kind of major opera company to do a production of it. Mm-hmm. And then it has kind of gone around since then. It had its European premiere, I think, towards the late 90s or maybe around the hmm. year 2000. And then has kind of worked its way around from there. 
like I should also mention, so generally in any production, there are at least three quote unquote singing characters. So mm-hmm. you have um, Maria, of course. You have El Duende, who actually is kind of like a, it's almost like a, a spoken, like kind of speech singing, but but more so just spoken. Yeah, not even quite Sprechstimme. Uh, it's just kind of speaking, but in a more lyrical way. And then okay. you have um, another character that is a, a singer uh, that's like, a, it's a baritone role. Uh, that comes mm-hmm. in, and it's somebody who, at least in the production that I saw, was somebody that Maria got romantically involved with. Okay. Uh, and so I really enjoyed the the baritone that I saw singing this role, and so some of that music really stood out to me as being lovely. So I don't remember the name off the top of my head, but this is the the main song from the from that baritone role. Oigue los poetas y a los pungas y las locas Les saldrá otra vez un cuervo blanco por la boca Ay, que por el dos profundo y fijo de los dados Miran de otro mundo dos ojitos alunados Hoy quiera buscar su par por pares espantosos La cansada pierna de neón de un luminoso Hoy que en la aburrida tanga son de algún cortado Un arlequín que vio la punta del piolín Se hundió abrazado de un terror So when... Um, there is like the shadow Maria when she maybe or maybe not dies halfway through the opera is that as that's not a singing role is that a spoken role or no no she's still no. maria i mean she's still singing oh it's still the same and I, yeah i should say still the same performer oh, okay the the production that i saw the interpretation wasn't that she died in the midway point but it was almost like that was when she had her like complete fall from grace uh, oh, if you will, interesting. and so then after that, she was like this half. She was like this downtrodden Maria, gotcha. okay. who wasn't quite the same. Mm-hmm. But then still, at the end of the opera, she did die. So right, right. Okay. but it just kind of shows you how different things are. It's interesting too that with the Duende character, I think for most of the history of this opera being performed, it's been a a male who has spoken that role. Uh, hmm. But the production that I saw had a, a woman in the, the Duende role um, that was dressed as a man, but it, it had a pretty good effect. It was a, a mezzo hmm. that, that did it, and she was able to pull it off really well. I should also mention that there is a particular soprano who has been the preeminent interpreter of Maria for mm-hmm. it, basically the last... 10 years, uh, Catalina Cuervo, who she's done it all over the US. Um, she's a Colombian, a Colombian soprano. And when you hear her do this role, it's like she really seems like the perfect fit. She doesn't have the traditional operatic sound, and she has this grittiness in her voice that, hmm. uh, that is, it does a good job of capturing Maria, you know, going through some of these hardships 
and representing that in song. So let's listen to a little bit of Catalina Cuervo singing part of this role. So that's generally it. I know this is a weird telling, but let me tell you, it's a weird opera. <laughs> and I don't even mean that in a negative way. But No, I mean, I knew you had seen it and I was just very curious to learn more about it because yep. it's not one that comes up often, although it is popping up more and more. But I feel like if it's coming to a theater near you, you should go and see it. Definitely. Yeah, and it's also not one... It, it lends itself better to smaller opera companies mm. because generally it has a smaller orchestra. Like I said, there's only three singing characters. So it's not something that you're going to see it like the biggest, most major opera houses. You're going to see it, and, and we have seen it in smaller companies uh, around the country and around the world. So that's a nice aspect is that you may actually have a better chance of seeing it close to you because it's a smaller scale and a little bit easier to produce. I can imagine it works well in in a more intimate space, like performance space. Yeah, the one that I saw it in was yeah. like a, a 650-seat theater. Oh, okay. And, uh, nice. and that was really nice. It's pretty perfect for it. Not to mention it's been performed quite a bit in cities that have a large Spanish-speaking population. Mm-hmm. Uh, because... You know, because they want the companies want to be more representative of their own their own community, Com- right? So it makes perfect sense. Well, thank you for sharing your knowledge with yes, us. Thank you, Kyle. Of course, thanks for bearing with me. And we really should consider sometime having either a a tango expert on the podcast mm. to illuminate things for us. Or yes. um, even more specifically, an Astor Piazzolla expert, because mm-hmm. he really is, he's pretty legendary in the world of tango. Mm-hmm. Uh, like I said, there are purists that, that aren't down with Piazzolla, but by and large, he's somebody who has introduced the mass public to tango in a way that, that probably nobody else has. I also feel like, from the little that I know about him, he is one of those people who is influential both as a composer and as a performer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? Like, because he composed quite a bit. And so a lot of times you have people who are really influential composers or really influential performers, but the combination of the two is a more rare thing. So, yeah. Definitely. Maybe in the future. We will work on that. And (laughs) in the meantime, if you want to support the podcast, you can check out our Patreon page. You can buy some merch in our merch store. Um, You can look at operaafterdark.com. That's where the merch store is. Patreon.com slash operaafterdark. You can find us on social media, on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can leave a review if you've enjoyed listening to us talk about all kinds of operatic things. And with that, I'm Naomi. I'm Elspeth. And I'm Kyle. Thanks Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.
más normal de olvido eres entre todas las mujeres. Presagio eres entre todas las mujeres. De olvido eres entre todas las mujeres. Presagio eres entre todas las mujeres. De olvido eres. Presagio eres. Thank you.